Welcome to PSQH the podcast. I'm your host Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Pete Riley of Hub International about how to navigate the risks of telehealth. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Pete Riley, practice leader and chief sales officer of Hub International's North American Healthcare Practice. Welcome, Pete. Thank you. Nice to be here. Good to have you here. And we're going to be talking today about the risks of virtual medicine. Um, But before we get into that, I I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and about uh, Hub International. Sure. Uh, I uh, have been in the insurance brokerage industry for uh, just over 32 years, uh, about 30, 31 of which have been involved in the, uh, the healthcare world. And by that, I mean uh, not health insurance, medical, and those things that many people think of, but rather the uh, medical professional liability world, medical malpractice, and all things that deal with the actual uh, treatment of patients. Um, I lead the North American healthcare practice for Hub, both in the US and Canada. We are one of the top five uh, largest insurance brokers by revenue in the world. Um, It is an organization that has operations across all of North America, along with eight specialty practices, uh, which I lead the one regarding healthcare. And with that group, what we really focus on are the complex issues and um, challenges faced by providers uh, really across the board. My particular uh, group and area of expertise has to deal with those liabilities, third-party issues uh, that providers face, and then the ever-changing landscape. Uh, particularly in the, you know, whether you want to call it post-COVID world, uh, but certainly post-pandemic environment. Um, and, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, virtual medicine, telemedicine uh, today, but what was the state of it from your vantage point uh, before the pandemic hit? In a word, it was fractured. While this has been a tool uh, and something that a lot of providers have had in there, uh, you know, an arrow in their quiver, uh, it was highly disjointed in its regulation, both federally uh, at the state level and across the provinces in Canada. And that was really because you had a number of uh, late adopters to what I think the the opportunity that virtual care provided. Um, and it's largely a case of the regulations and, and the providers themselves not necessarily keeping up with what the technology could do. And so it was slow to be adopted, uh, although we were seeing more significant uptake um, in in the United States anyway, by many healthcare medical insurance providers offering it uh, to their members. However, there was still a great deal of reluctance by the end user, the patients themselves, who still liked going to the doctor's offices and wanted to see their particular provider. Again, both true in both the US and Canada. Um, just, I think, because that's the way things had always been done. So, you know, in a word, it was fractured and, and the end users were just simply slow to uptake on, on the opportunity. And how did you see it change during the pandemic? Uh, in a word, uh, <laughs> dramatically hmm. uh, or significantly. Um, if there was any good that came out of the awful uh, pandemic, I think it was from a healthcare perspective, not only were the providers themselves remarkable heroes uh, for the, the service that they did, 
but people began to realize the power of that virtual care, be it, you know, telemedicine, be it, you know, remote through an iPad or any other uh, digital uh, platform. It really exploded because people realized the necessity to continue to have interaction with their patients, particularly for chronic medicines, uh, uh, treatment and planning. Uh, but you also saw people finally realizing that this tool, uh, both from the provider and the patient perspective, that this was a remarkable technology that would allow them to continue to you know, engage with their physicians and medical providers, continue their treatment plan for very serious illnesses, while at the same time, you know, understanding the technology was uh, powerful but user-friendly. And so it was a really a sea change uh, that obviously didn't take place right at the outset, but came to, came to the fore kind of about this time uh, back in 2020, as we were really getting into the depths of the, the pandemic. And, you know, obviously now we're, you know, we're not totally out of the woods yet, but we're pretty close. Things are opening up. Um, how, you know, what are you hearing about how uh, providers are going to use, uh, you know, telemedicine going forward? I think you're going to continue to see real engagement on the part of the providers. Uh, I think you are going to see, and it is going to vary somewhat by uh, between the U.S. and Canada uh, and even parts of, of Western Europe. You're going to see it vary a little bit by the specialty, meaning obviously uh, psychiatry and other mental health uh, providers will, will certainly like the ability to get in touch with their patients but again, very difficult to work sometimes in a non-personal setting. You will see other uh, more uh, you know, office-based care, sort of wellness checkups and things like that, that a lot of those services will continue and are able to be done via a virtual technology. And so I think there's going to continue to be expanded use. We're going to bump around a little bit, uh, both from a provider and a patient standpoint as to ultimately how it is used. I think particularly in the uh, elder population, just more resistant to technology in general. Um, but I think you're, you're, we're not gonna put this genie back in the bottle. Uh, but again, depending on where you are geographically, rural communities in both the US and Canada will have remarkable access now they didn't have before. And I think you'll continue to see the adoption, expansion, improved use uh, and it just it will continue to go along sometimes incrementally sometimes i think we're going to see remarkable leaps and bounds um, but virtual care is very much here to stay is going to become a part of the uh, the organizational plans operational plans for providers and just a, a generational change for the adoption by uh and it's used by patients um uh, and you know, we're obviously talking today about the risks of, of virtual medicine. So, you know, what do you what do you see as the risks uh, involved in, in using this kind of, uh, you know, these kinds of services going forward? Well, if it, to try and keep it in somewhat simple terms, but they're, they're rather dynamic and complex. But there are really three basic uh, buckets. I think you can you can talk about the risk. And then within those, obviously, there are nuances. There's good old fashioned. Uh, so professional liability, meaning a medical provider somehow fails to diagnose or misdiagnoses um, a patient through a virtual care 
or digital you know, health platform. Uh, that remains good old fashioned medical malpractice risks that are really no different than if you were in person. While virtual care can and will uh, provide, I think, opportunities to overcome that, it still remains very much a, um, the reality of the delivery of medicine is there may be bad outcomes. And sometimes that will lead to a continued risk of medical professional exposures. The two newer ones that, uh, I mean, the one that is making headlines quite regularly at the moment is that of data security and, and privacy with so much in the way of uh, electronic platforms being hacked and again, not getting into politics, but whether the Russians are hacking the, um, you know, NASA or other organizations, or we have the, uh, the coastal pipeline, um, uh, recent ransomware issue, data security is going to become sort of continue to push, I should say, to, to the forefront because there's so much personal information exchanged over these platforms that providers need to be aware that this is a new standard. And that risk is going to only increase as more and more hackers and, you know, actors with ill intent trying to go after data, the privacy information, et cetera, et cetera. And so while that's not new, that is exploding. The last part, and I think probably the least well understood are the technology risks, meaning there's a, there's a commercial uh, about one of the um, just telephone companies, a woman who's talking to a friend about how to dress for a party and the call breaks up in the process and it ends up sounding like it's a costume party when it is not. In fact, it's a serious function and so she looks silly. On a much more serious note, if the platform, the technology itself malfunctions or is somehow not updated, you know, really best in class, the provider runs the risk of, of somehow not truly seeing, hearing or understanding the risks of their patients. A great example I guess I can give you is if a dermatology uh, provider is trying to diagnose, say, a picture of something on, on a patient's skin. If the technology somehow fails or is not clear, that may lead to, as I referenced earlier, a misdiagnosis. But if the technology is what was the cause, the technology was somehow inferior, broke down, incomplete, you know, wasn't pixelated enough, um, that's a huge issue for uh, a real potentially life and death scenarios. So that technology, you know, is one that I think many folks think they don't have to worry about so much, meaning providers or even patients. But I think that is the one that is probably the least well understood and will continue to be uh, a source of some consternation uh, until and as technology improves you know, broadband access, all those things feed into it. So it's a, that's a bucket uh, that you will be, you know, could continue to be sort of bottomless for a little while. So how, how can healthcare organizations mitigate the, the risks involved in virtual medicine? That's a, a, a great question. And one that what I answer today will probably need to be revised in six months to a year, um, if not sooner. First and foremost, they need to conduct, I think, a bit of an enterprise-wide uh, assessment of where virtual health, telehealth, digital health, whatever name you want to call it, um, excuse me, is, is being utilized. 
And so you'll need to know exactly where you are dependent within your operation and, and how and where digital health is, is a part of the organization. <coughs> Excuse me. You will continue to need to work with counsel, outside counsel, regarding rules and regulations about how and where you are treating your patient population. By that I mean, are you crossing state lines? And so you run into potential licensing or other regulatory and compliance uh, issues from departments of health or you know, whatever state uh, and or provincial uh, regulations need to be complied with. And those will change. Well, CMS here in the US, when it uh, relaxed those rules, really tore down some walls that had heretofore been a challenge. Some of those rules may go back up, and so you need to be aware of that. And it, it's not something that you do once a year, it's almost a constant. There do, uh, or I should say, there will need to be a uh, re emphasis on good old-fashioned treatment protocols, consent forms from patients, some of the basic blocking and tackling that takes place in the delivery of medicine, that it's largely administrative and bureaucratic and nobody enjoys it, but it is really one of the few ways that providers can protect themselves, that the patient understands the limitations that digital health may present. Um, for all of its benefits, there, as I said, there are downsides. And so that, that assessment needs to take place. And that includes two really key components. One is the contract that a provider may have with the technology company, meaning the platform over which you conduct your interaction. We're sitting here on a, a go-to-meeting call. Um, there are rules and regs and you know, there's a user agreement uh, that is subscribed to. The contract between the provider and the technology platform should be very carefully reviewed for contractual liability issues to try to mitigate what can be done for the provider. Um, and at the same time, as I mentioned, you know, consent forms. There needs to be a careful re-emphasis and review of what consent forms are asked of the patient and almost a, a reminder to the patient that you do understand the risks associated with. It's almost like a clinical trial um, that no matter how much we like virtual uh, in these platforms is not a substitute for in-person face-to-face. And so those are uh, aspects and components. Training needs to be done on the part of not just the, say, the medical doctor themselves, but also the nursing staff, that if a nurse were to see that somehow something had gone wrong, that individual needs to speak up to make sure that it is understood, hey, wait a minute, something has not quite gone appropriately and needs to be flagged. Uh, it may just be that the patient for a brief moment froze and communication broke down. Maybe that the picture isn't clear. There's a number of basic uh, steps that uh, ancillary providers will, will need to be prepared to step up. And then the good old fashioned blocking and tackling of just having uh, protocols and procedures uh, you know, and things that help with the standard of care uh, as required. Uh, I know that seems very mundane and, and simplistic, but the, 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 that, those are the basic building blocks of uh, patient care that still need to be adhered to, and I would even argue need to be redoubled when you're trying to work within a digital or virtual platform. And then lastly, uh, from a purely um, 
data security standpoint, uh, the rules and how an organization is going to handle personal health information, you know, PHI, PII, um, those need to be reviewed constantly. I would say almost quarterly to make sure because there's so much exchange of information that could easily you know, be of value in a data breach, um, those processes really need to be carefully scrutinized uh, in this day and age. And I don't see that coming to an end anytime soon. And that's a, that's a lot of things to cover and to, to really be on top of. Um, from your vantage point, do you see providers being properly prepared to kind of deal with these risks going forward? No. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would leave it at that. Uh, and, and, and that is not their fault, per se. Um, you know, most folks were trained to provide care to patients. Right. Uh, and so much of this was not in that training. Uh, and if you are like me in your you know, middle 50s, uh, while these people are certainly intelligent enough, uh, in many cases, uh, more intelligent than uh, than I certainly am. But um, to retrain those folks is is required because this yeah. is something that is different than than they were used to. And so I make that statement not as a judgment of that. Uh, but unless you have the resources of some of our largest health systems, um, it's an enormous challenge. And so I don't think many simply have the time, because if you're given the time to either review contracts or look at data, you know, security issues and or treat a patient who may be in real need, 101 out of 100 medical providers, you know, that's partly why they went into business, is going to take care of the patient. Right. Um, and we can't fault them for that. But that means there's all the more need for diligence and good small seat counsel and advice from lawyers, insurance brokers, accountants, the whole uh, you know cadre of providers uh, and, and organizations like yours to get the word out to help them understand the challenges. Um, do you feel that message is getting out there slowly that you know there's just a lot more training that needs to be done and a lot more preparation than just you know turning on a a monitor and a link and, and, you know, talking to a patient? Um, I, I do think the word is getting out and, and many organizations, um, and again, my world defaults sort of from the insurance world, but the American Society of Healthcare Risk Managers, um, uh, local MGMA chapters, again, organizations like yours are doing a very good job of continuing to get the word out. I think the challenge in the industry remains dedicating someone or a group of people to take the time to not only keep up to speed and read and learn all this material to then integrate it into the respective practices or hospitals or whatever the case may be and probably the most difficult part is to then continue the ongoing monitoring and uh, updating if you will uh, that the word is getting out, and I think everybody realizes it, but it's there are only 24 hours in a day. And right. so how they're figuring out to adopt as quickly as they can is, is the real challenge. I, mean, I, I will say this, and I've spoken to dozens of providers from CFOs to you know, risk managers of large corporations to doctors, and it's almost always it's just, it's just the time to understand it and then integrate it, and that's the big challenge. 
do you, I mean, you know, obviously, like you said, you're talking to, to these folks. Are you seeing a willingness to, to do it as, you know, it's just a matter of kind of figuring out how to, how to do it. And like you said, where to find the time and the, and the resources. I think there is. Yes. And, and I have been very pleasantly surprised that, uh, the, you know, the, the healthcare provider community and then even the patients um, that I've had much more limited chance to, to talk with um, do want to understand better and continue to utilize and, and make the best of this. Obviously, in the midst of the uh, COVID pandemic, that was incredibly challenging because who, who knew when we would have the next outbreak or wave uh, of infections. So it has, I don't think it's fair to, to anyone. And I've pushed back with a lot of our uh, insurance trading partners, meaning insurance companies, when you know, they talk about, well, they need to adopt certain rules or things faster. You know, we have come to a period that uh, no one predicted to, to this degree. Uh, yes, there may have been some uh, very academic-minded folks or folks in government who laid out plans for a global pandemic. But I don't think anyone saw the ripples and, and the lockdown and the dependence on as we're communicating over um, you know, technology. But I do think there's a, a real willingness and an intent, uh, the very best of intents to, to try to get to, to all of these potential issues. Uh, one of the great, I think, sort of themes that run through healthcare uh, for the vast majority of folks is that they want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they want to take care of their patients. They want to see them get better. And the tool you know, like robotic surgery when it first came out was slow to be adopted, but it's turned out to be a, a remarkable um, tool for these providers to, to do wonderful things. We're still, as you said at the outset of our, our conversation today, you know, coming out, what we hope is the, the end of this awful pandemic. Um, and so there's still an effort to find the time but people i think are very cautious to say are we out the other side of this you know awful right. period right. Uh, so that's one of those questions ask me in six months and i can can give you an update or even three months i hope um but it is i think the best of intentions are there now it's just going to be okay we've got to revamp how we do things and how does this become uh, a part of that process and it'll also be interesting to see what happens in the fall next winter when flu you know the flu season comes back and you know will will a covid variant you know kind of rise up and and kind of put us back in the same place we were a year ago or will we you know will the vaccination be enough to stop it and you know so there's, there's still a lot of unanswered questions there indeed and that's that's the real i think hesitation on everybody's part um, as with the first wave in 2020 in the summer things got better um you know, viruses and, and, and how and the way they respond with, you know, I think now the Delta variant is the latest one of the press. Right. However, I, I do think, you know, as with most science, uh, we have more data, we have more information, we have more people looking at it to help interpret and better understand. So unless we are hit with, you know, just a, an awful uh, next wave, and we certainly hope that is not the case, I do think the risk management community and working within healthcare, and not just at the largest systems, but even the office managers down at the smallest rural uh, provider uh, offices, are trying to find ways to integrate the the need and the complexities of virtual care into their practices. 
And there are a number of very good services that are trying to help provide that assistance as well. And so I think we are making great strides. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, virtual care remains sort of in the third inning of a, a nine inning baseball game, if I can use that analogy, because um, there's just so much runway for it. But obviously a resurgence of some awful variant of COVID or other, as you said, even the flu will slow things down, uh, sadly. Um, as you've sort of analyzed, you know, sort of the growth of virtual medicine and, and how it's being used, have you noticed any instances where there's been sort of an over-reliance on it? Um, what's sort of been the, you know, I guess, I don't know if there's an optimal percentage, but have you, have you sort of noticed that it's kind of varied from too little to too much? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I, I certainly think you know the easier answer is you know, too little use is was the case early on. Um, I don't know that there that it's far enough along that there could be too much just yet. Um, you know, I think the risk is there potentially of a hypochondriac mindset of you know hitting the app on your phone for the sniffles, right? But Honestly, that's a much better use of the time than, say, people crowding a, a you know an emergency room in a hospital, right? Or a care center. So, um, I think the challenge might become, and I haven't heard of any instances yet. So, I don't want to speak universally. Um, one of the challenges with you know broadband and bandwidth in certain uh, parts of both the U.S. and Canada, I guess, if you had too many people going out to uh, uh, the web, you could see a slowdown in patients not getting care in time. But I think it will become more and more important for folks to realize that virtual care, uh, I don't think will ever be a substitute for life-saving emergency room you know, trauma necessarily. Um, you know, it may help for someone who is waiting for 911 to show up to care that the, they can have a camera show someone who can say do XYZ to stabilize a patient. Um, but I'd have a hard time thinking right now how we would overutilize, you know, without drawing a, a silly example, um, given the sort of nascent stage of, of the technology. Um, I guess my fear might become that people shut-ins or others, and particularly in the world, I think there's so much power potentially within virtual care, within mental health treatment mm -hmm. of people simply um, staying in and thinking it's a substitute because I don't believe that it is. Technologies can still fail. You know, it's incredible. Now you can stick your finger in a little device and the doctor over the phone can get your um, blood pressure or other pieces. Yeah, that's just remarkable. But I, I think we need to be careful not to have an over-reliance on it that I never have to go to the doctor again. Right. But I, I think that's far down the road. And I guess I'm truly being a doomsday. And trying to come up with that scenario. But at the moment, I don't think there's overuse, um, especially since we're still just really truly figuring out, uh, you know, I'm beginning to hear you know, virtual dentistry. That one's of interest to me. I'd love to see how it happens. But, you know, someone's doing it and more power to them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the risk of, you know, data security and, and privacy concerns. H have you seen it happen with uh, telemedicine where, you know, I know we've been hearing about, you know, ransomware attacks on hospitals, but has it, has it specifically happened 
you know, to a, a virtual medicine service yet? It has, and and, and I won't mention names because it is not fair to to them. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it, it, there have been um, attempts at ransomware and some other, uh, you know, to try and overload their particular um, platform. You know, the denial of service attacks to say, hey, you're not going to get to your patients unless. Um, are they common? Uh, not yet, but are they taking place? Yes. And it seems like, you know, sort of that aspect of, um, you know, data security, those kinds of attacks are like you mentioned other industries, too. They're, they're definitely becoming more common uh, in general, uh, those kinds of attacks. So, I, you know, I'm sure, you know, risk managers and, uh, you know, uh, CEOs are already, you know, pretty concerned about this. So, you know, I'm sure telemedicine doesn't, you know, just adds another uh, element to the to the worry well it does and it's it's again part of the newness of the platform um the, the scary part with so many of these sort of attacks is that they aren't discovered uh for some time you know after the fact and um, one of the real dangers at least to some parts of healthcare, is if you are either a publicly traded health care organization or even a private equity backed or conglomerate um, these types of attacks often I mean, candidly simply are intended to be shots at the balance sheet to try and force uh, actions on the part of the owners. Um, you know, they're not after trying to shut down a hospital to harm people. They want the money. Right. And if you have a denial of service attack and a lot of your, uh, if you're a owner of a virtual care platform, um, if that type of attack happens, you're taking a remarkable hit to your you know, financial position. And so I, I do think you are seeing more and more CFOs, really the entire C-suite and you know, chief risk officers are becoming a part of that, um, that begin to understand the potential impact, you know, sadly, and not meaning to put the patient ultimately as kind of the um, anything other than the primary concern. But if you were a digital health platform that had denial of service and it's like, well, you can't even get to your patients, you know, the patient wait time is going to be three, four and five hours. People are just going to stop using it. So then right. it does become a um, financial challenge. You know, if you haven't seen the patient, you're not likely to have a malpractice claim. Um, but that's why I say you wouldn't put the patient first in that instance. But those are the types of things that they're becoming mindful of. Because it's just like the you know the uh, the pipeline, if the, the particular product can't flow or move or utilized by the end user, it's not of great value. Yeah. Well, Pete, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was fascinating stuff. Um, and uh, it is. Let's hope. Uh, let's hope that uh, you know things things work out and everybody can kind of get that training that they need to uh, to you know to make this a viable. Um, service going forward. Well, I think that's uh, that's where it's going, and and a lot of very smart and uh, and best of attention people are doing that. And I do think the medical community, again, both in the U.S. and Canada, and really uh, in many parts of the world, um, are endeavoring to take that up just as effectively as they can, uh, because this is one of those true tools that um, you know, the end user is the patient population, and you know, ultimately that's just a very good thing.
Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. That wraps up episode 36 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.